Matthew chapter 10, we started looking at this a few weeks ago. We'll pick up tonight by reading verses 16 through 23. 16 to 23 of Matthew 10. Let's hear God's word. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Amen. We'll end our reading there. Let's ask for God's help. Father in heaven again, what a privilege to consider your word. Let me think of Psalm 119, all the things the author said about your word. What a delight it was to him, how it corrected him, how it instructed him, how it put him on the right way. And oh, how we love your word. And so I pray tonight as we consider your word that you would just give us the grace we need to think your thoughts after you, to understand what is written here, and to believe it and obey. Fill me with your spirit to that end. Bless the people to make that right response to your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Matthew chapter 10 continues the theme of Jesus' authority that has come through very strongly in several chapters in Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount amazed people by Jesus' authority, how he taught them. And then he came down from the Mount, and in chapters 8 and 9, he went about Galilee doing several miracles and performing wonders and giving even more teaching that continued to amaze the people. Who is this? What manner of man is this? Matthew wants us to make the right response to realize that this is God manifest in the flesh, the authoritative one coming for our salvation. And as we then come into Matthew chapter 10, Jesus in no way diminishes his authority, but there's an interesting shift in that Jesus begins to instruct his disciples on the mission they will carry out. Immediately a short-term preaching tour through the towns of Galilee, but eventually, as we come to the end of Matthew and the Great Commission, a mission to the ends of the earth. A mission in which they are to go and make disciples, call other people to follow Jesus as they have done. And what Jesus promises them in this chapter is that his authority will go with them. So he is the authoritative one. And he has come on a mission. And yet that mission continues in the life of the church today, and that authority is present with us. That is what chapter 10, the end of 9, interestingly, and all of 10 are concerned about, how Jesus manifests his authority in our mission. 
tells us to pray for that mission at the end of chapter 9 and then to prepare for that mission in chapter 10 or the first 15 verses as we see Jesus selecting his disciples. And then we see Jesus instructing them before he sends them out on the mission, telling them things like, now go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We wonder why so restrictive, but we'll actually speak to that again tonight in the very last verse about the son of of man coming. But the short answer being, minister here first, and through the Jews, even through their rejection, salvation will come to the world. We'll start here, but we're going to work our way out as time goes on. So that's their audience, and then there's the nature of the mission, that in their word and in their deed, they would do the same things Jesus is doing. And how people respond to them indicates how people are ultimately responding to Jesus and to God himself. And so what provision then are they to make uh, for the mission? Well, just travel light. Don't worry about accumulating all these things that you're going to carry with you. Just go. Don't delay. Get out there and go. Trust God to supply your needs. Depend on whatever hospitality you receive. Remember, if they're friendly to the kingdom, they're going to be friendly to you. Because ultimately, they're friendly to me. As you go and receive that, you bless them. And if they reject you, well, then you warn them of God's judgment and you move on. So those are the instructions for the mission. And tonight, we come to verses 16 through 23, where they begin to engage the mission. Now, not in the terms of, you know, a narrative. We're not actually reading them going out on mission. But you feel a little shift here as Jesus begins to talk about, here's what it will be like as you go. So we get a flavor of what it's like to engage the mission in these verses. And the first thing that we're uh, confronted with in these verses tonight is this warning. Jesus warning the disciples of the persecution or the harassment or the opposition and possibly even the suffering that will come to them as they engage their mission. Now, keep in mind as we go through these verses, there's a dual focus in Matthew chapter 10. On the one hand, we have the disciples' immediate mission. There's a short preaching, a short-term preaching tour in Galilee, the northern area, and the 12 will go And engage in that mission. And eventually they'll return to Jesus. And they'll talk about all the things that happened on the trip. But keep in mind also, some of what Jesus says must refer to the continued mission down the road. We'll see several of those statements tonight. It's almost like the disciples are the rock being cast into the pond. But the ripples will go out. We are those ripples today. So some of what Jesus says is, as the rock is thrown into the pond, and some of what he says is dealing with the ripples going out. But what holds all of his statements together in tonight's verses is this repeated warning. A warning of persecution that arises because of Jesus. Remember, if the people's response to the disciples shows their response to Jesus, if the disciples are sharing Jesus' mission, well... That's going to work both ways. That means the disciples can expect to receive the negative treatment that Jesus receives from certain segments of the population. 
And you know the stories of the Gospels to know what I'm talking about. You even know how that ends with his crucifixion there in Jerusalem. Don't get me wrong, in some places Jesus is well received. You know, we talk about the crowds that follow and, you know, they just came for the food. Yes, Jesus rebuked that. But other crowds followed even faithfully to his death. So it's not as if everybody is opposed to him. Remember, the disciples will find some houses with hospitality that welcome the message of the kingdom. So in some places, Jesus is truly received, but he is also strongly opposed. And so he's going to warn the disciples of how they can expect that and what to do in the face of it. And so immediately we begin to see how it applies to you and me, what we should be ready for, and also how we can respond. So let's look at Jesus' statements. The first one is verse 16. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Now I wonder if we were amongst the twelve, if those words might cause us some consternation and anxiety. I mean, it's great seeing these miracles and authority, but oh wait, like sheep amongst wolves? I mean, how often does that go well for the sheep? Never. And so Jesus is maybe unsettling them a little bit to expect hostility as they go out and confront uh, the world, as they go out and confront Israel on this preaching tour. And I think it's legitimate to ask, okay, what did it look like? How did this happen in the lives of the early Christians or the church throughout time? So just a little overview of, of that idea of persecution. Of course, we read about persecution that came from Roman society as the church went out into the world. So just read Acts. The Apostle Paul is often imprisoned. Uh, ironically, sometimes due to disturbances of the peace that he didn't actually instigate. He'd preach and other people would get mad and there's this commotion. And so everybody goes to jail because of the riot. When he's incarcerated, sometimes he's viewed sympathetically. Some of those people he talks to, they're, okay, this doesn't seem like a bad guy. I mean, maybe he could go free. Other people just don't really care about him. He's some religious guy who cares what this guy has to say. Uh, you do see Agrippa, one of the local leaders, executing James, the leader of the Jerusalem church. Of course, Nero is the first Roman emperor to show real animus towards Christians, you're probably aware there was a great fire in Rome and Nero blamed it on the Christians so he could scapegoat them and, and have a good cause to uh, persecute them and go after some of them. Of course, in society, Christians were often viewed by with scorn. So if you read some of the early church fathers like Justin Martyr as they interacted with prominent uh, Romans, the Romans just thought, these Christians are silly. They have these backwards ideas and they just, you know, they're looked down on uh, by the elites. And of course, there could be scorn or even trouble in your work uh, if you were a Christian. So we live in a much more secular society and, and not just in the past 10 years. I mean, in the past 200 years compared with Rome, we're very secular. Everything in Rome had a God. Your job had a God. Your guild had a God. If you went to a birthday party, there was some God uh, acknowledged. And so if you didn't participate in all of those religious functions, well, you could lose work. You could lose your social uh, standing. And that's where you get into Christians really getting in trouble with the state. Now, now contrary to popular opinion, contrary to the way we sometimes imagine it, uh, the Romans from day one weren't interested in going door to door and rounding up Christians. In fact, for a long time, the official policy was, leave those people alone. 
But if they end up in your courts, then you need to ask them to offer a sacrifice to the emperor. And if they won't do that, then you can punish them. So if somehow maybe your neighbor denounced you, he didn't like you, or you got in some kind of trouble and you ended up in court, then there would be that pressure uh, to offer the sacrifices to the Roman emperor. And when the Christians would say, no, we can't do that. Jesus is Lord. Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. Then there could be uh, various punishments. And that's not to say then that, that no Romans ever went after Christians. Two Roman emperors in particular uh, seem to really hate Christianity. And in the first about 300 years of the church, uh, you had two periods that were significantly hot and heavy. Uh, one Roman emperor even boasted, I think I've gotten rid of the Christians finally. Uh, in the Roman emperor, uh, Empire. But it could come in waves. It, it might be heavy in this area, not in this area. It, it might be intense during this time, but not uh, at other times. So that's kind of persecution of the church in the first few hundred years. Of course, interestingly, the immediate persecution that Jesus and the disciples faced was not Roman, but it was religious. So the disciples were viewed as heretics. Uh, they were viewed as a threat to the interests of the various Jewish parties. And those Jewish parties had religious reasons uh, for acting the way they did. Jesus, of course, was executed uh, by the Romans, but delivered to them by whom? The religious authorities. And as uh, Christianity grew in the Roman Empire, it, it reached the day where you had a Roman emperor, Constantine, declare himself to be a Christian. So he made Christianity legal, that ended any official persecution, and then he actually made Christianity the state religion. And then the church has just had a, an interesting, sometimes good, sometimes very bad, uh, relationship to the state in its subsequent history. But, but that joining of church-state interests means that sadly at times, uh, the church itself was the persecutor of others. So in the Middle Ages, if, if you were a heretic, that was a, a crime against the state and could be punishable uh, by various punishments and even death in, in the time of the Reformation. Catholic, uh, the official church there, did uh, pro uh, persecute Protestants, and sadly, in certain Protestant countries, Protestants persecuted other Christians, including the Anabaptists. Swingley drowned them when he was there uh, in charge in Switzerland. So it's just kind of a sad commentary that the church that was persecuted at times became the persecutor. Of course, I think the question we have to ask ourselves, it's always a question I ask whenever I study the Bible and come to these statements on persecution, is, okay, we live in a different world from what the disciples lived in. Uh, we live in, as I said, a post-enlightenment society. So it's not just that secularism has risen in the past 10 years. It has. But for 200 years... Uh, we have had nations that don't have official religions. And especially in America, there has been religious freedom, uh, religious toleration, and Christians have even been the majority culture. So how should we understand these statements about persecution if that hasn't actually been our experience? How, how can we appreciate these verses and even obey them uh, if that's not knocking at your door? Well, here's a few ways to approach it. I would say first, remember, others in the world do still experience persecution. So when we had a get-together at the Hallows several months ago, Dale brought his friend Reuben, 
I think he said was from Nigeria. Uh, he mentioned him last week in the sermon. And Reuben was telling us some stories of having to flee church because terrorist groups are coming around to basically blow up their building and persecute Christians. So his dad's a pastor, and he talked about hiding in the fields one time uh, when different groups were going through looking for Christians. That, that's, I have never experienced that. I would be shocked if at any point in my life I did. But that was a real experience for someone in this time, and we need to remember them, and we need to pray for them. Hebrews 13 says, Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Don't think that's some old world experience. For some people, it's a live situation. And empathize with them and pray for them as if it was your own situation. What if providence does not send you persecution? Well, Calvin actually dealt with this in one sermon. He said, look, a lot of people have a tough life and a lot of people are persecuted. But if God doesn't ordain that for you, you should give thanks for that. You should, you should be humble. You should do what God has called you to do and you should do it well. But, but if God doesn't send you persecution, then he, you just tell him thank you. And I think especially in our situation, we have to be very careful that we don't read these verses and say, well, Jesus said I would experience persecution, but I'm not experiencing persecution. Well, maybe I'm doing something wrong. So maybe I should go looking for trouble. Maybe I need to do something to get this trouble uh, to come find me. Maybe I need to start imagining persecution coming to me from certain segments and calling things religious persecution that at the end of the day isn't. Or going out and making sure that it finds you. That is something Christians should not do. And Jesus' words do not give us any uh, justification to act in that way. What I would say is be prepared for anything. In providence, God may keep you from that. Providence may decree that for you. Don't serve God just because he gives you nice things. Don't serve God just because you have a comfortable life. Be ready for anything God might send you. And then, getting back to our text here, I would give you this counsel that Jesus gives you. After he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, he says, Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. So be as shrewd as snakes. What do snakes do when trouble comes? They get out of the way. What's the old saying? They're more afraid of you than you are of them. When trouble comes, snakes flee. They don't go looking for trouble. And I think that idea is justified by Jesus' own words. In Luke 16, he uses the same word, or a very similar word. So the word for shrewd here, he uses that in Luke 16 when he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's the conclusion of the parable of the steward, who, remember, he knew he was going to get fired, so he started cutting deals with all his master's creditors, so that when he got the boot, he'd have some friends to welcome him. And Jesus commended that unjust steward, and then gave these words. Be shrewd, be smart, be wise. Don't Go looking for trouble. Be as shrewd as servants and be as harmless, or excuse me, as innocent as doves. So if you're going to be cunning and shrewd like a snake, 
It won't be because you're trying to surprise attack your opponents and get the upper hand. It won't be because you're just trying to guarantee your own survival. Or two, it won't be because you're trying to harm your opponent, but because you're trying to be wise and preserve your own survival as much as you can without compromise. And, here's the main idea, commending the gospel. You're going to be shrewd and you're going to be innocent because at the end of the day, the message you want to come through loud and clear to an unbelieving world is that you care about the gospel and you care about God's kingdom more than anything else. You are not interested in merely preserving a way of life. You are not interested in merely getting your own way. And you're not going to attach secondary and personal issues to religious significance because the message is the gospel. And the message is God's kingdom. That is why Jesus tells them to be as shrewd as serpents, but as innocent as doves. I heard a recent, uh, excuse me, I read it, I sent it to some of you in the church, read a recent interview with Tim Keller, where he was asked, what do you see as the greatest threat to modern day Christians? And I think his answer is really good and worth reading in full here. He gives a two-part answer. He says, in the United States, I think the second greatest threat is a new progressive secular ideology that is coming to dominate the academy, the government, the corporate world, and the mainstream media. It is against freedom of speech and deeply opposed to religious people expressing or practicing many aspects of their faith in public. And I bet that's a statement a lot of you would sympathize with. You've seen the cultural turn. You've seen the tide changing. It is a different world from which many of you grew up in. It's different from the world I grew up in. And Keller acknowledges that. That's a genuine concern that we should keep our eyes on. As Peter says in his letter, the church does function as exiles, as strangers in this world. But I think what Keller goes on to say is insightful. I think it's worth hearing. He says, however, the first and greatest threat is the failure of the American church itself. The mainline church wedded itself to liberal political parties, and the evangelical church has done that with conservative political parties. And so we are now seen as nothing but a political power block. Also, there have been numerous egregious examples of hypocrisy with many prominent church leaders being found guilty of various forms of abuse and corrupt behavior. And instead of admitting past ways in which the American church has participated in the marginalization and exploitation of various peoples, a vociferous segment of the modern evangelical church has refused to repent and listen and instead has become harsh and denunciatory in its communication. The church has failed to fulfill the Great Commission in our time, and that it has not discovered a way to evangelize a post-Christian secular culture. And I think Keller's words there, though challenging, are well taken. It's easy to say it's, it's all those people out there. They're the problems. We're the suffering one. But Peter also makes in his letter, not only he calls us exiles, but he says, hey, now it's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. So we can lament what's outside. But the only thing we can really, at the end of the day, do anything about is what's inside. So Matthew 7, we start here. Let's, let's take care of our business. Let's take care of what we need to do as a church. And then 
by God's grace, we could speak to that culture with words of truth, but making sure that we're trying to communicate that in a way uh, that it could be heard and in the way it needs to be communicated. So I think that's where we find ourselves now and in the coming generation. And so you can see how Jesus's words uh, still very much apply to us and give us very good marching orders. So let's continue on with what he says there. He says in verse 17, be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogue. So here you go on one level, something that sounds like very oriented to the disciples' experience. As they went through these towns, uh, there would be these local councils that were made up of 23 members of Jewish society. I believe they were a male. And they had a responsibility to maintain public order. And in their town, that applied to affairs of life as well as religious affairs. So if you came through preaching something that was uh, causing a problem, well, they could oppose a penalty. They could flog you. Uh, and it's stated directly in both the scriptures and the Jewish law. Uh, the punishment of the 39 lashes. That uh, was the maximum flogging that you could be given uh, for crimes. And, and they were applied to moral crimes. They were applied to ritual offenses against the Mosaic law, including breaking the food laws. And so maybe that's the point at which Jesus' disciples and, of course, later Christians such as Paul, maybe that's where he would get in trouble with you know, the religious authorities. But you think, wow, food laws, that, that's really not something we're probably going uh, to face. But in the early church, that was the issue that might uh, get you persecuted. And then he goes on and says in verse 18, On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. So here now we see the shift uh, to the future, that they would go before kings. Well, during Jesus' ministry, Galilee did not have a king. Herod liked to call himself that. Uh, but he was just a tetrarch, just ruled over a specific area, and himself was under uh, the Roman emperor. Paul, however, did appear before a king. He appeared before various governors, and many Christians uh, as time went on, did so as well. So uh, the immediate and the future in scope here. But notice this good news, by the way. He says in verse 18 that you will be witnesses to them. And that is a very positive word in that you will be able to tell them the good news. You will be able to tell them why you would suffer as a Christian. So persecution, whatever it looks like, in your life, in your country, in your church, whatever it looks like, it will contribute to the spread of the gospel. They will be able to go before the highest authorities and present the claims of King Jesus. And just as Jesus himself stood trial before the Jewish council and the Roman governor, so the disciples will do so as well. Well, what should we do as we think about this unnerving possibility? Jesus says in verse 19, But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say. By the way, if that rings any bells, it's because it's the same words as Matthew 6. When he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Just leave it to God. Don't worry about preparing the right speech and getting all your ducks in a row and, and just being perfect in order to be able to say what you need to say. If the time comes where you're rounded up and need to speak, he says in verse 20, your father will give you what to say. 
It will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now, by the way, as I, as I learned to my just great disappointment, that actually doesn't refer to ordinary preaching duties. So I can't just stand up Sunday morning and say, God, fill me with whatever uh, these good people need to hear. I have to prepare. But let's say you find yourself in a crisis situation. <clears throat> Suddenly you just have to give a defense. You have to give a proclamation. And it's an intimidating setting. Maybe you're of a low social status compared to those who are trying you, as many of Jesus' earlier followers do. Well, I've got good news. As a disciple, you have a resource that goes beyond your intellectual abilities, that goes beyond your rhetorical powers. Maybe you think, I, I, just, I can't bear witness to Jesus. If, when you need to, the Holy Spirit will enable you to. And there's good groups that work out there, you know, with, with preparing, helping Christians stand trial or, or fighting for religious liberties. Those are good groups. But if the situation comes where you just suddenly have to speak, God will enable you to do that. And I would just think, you know, even getting beyond the, the context of persecution, this is a promise we should utilize in many contexts. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. He gives to everyone generously. And it will be given to you. And it says he gives it without finding fault. God won't shame you and say, what's wrong with you? God will say, you need wisdom, I'll give you wisdom. You need to know how to talk to your family, I'll give you the wisdom. I love the verse in Nehemiah, where he's so upset at the state of Jerusalem and wants to go home. But it's a crime for him to look upset or to be negligent in his duties. And the king calls him out. The king says, what is it you want? And Nehemiah says, then I pray to the God of heaven. It's just slipped right in there. You know, the king asked me, I threw up this prayer, and Nehemiah spoke, and the king granted his request. We need to take advantage of that promise whenever we can. And then look at these last verses in the time we have left tonight, verses 21 to 23. Not only will there sadly be hostility from the outside, but there may even be hostility from the inside. A brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child. Children uh, will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. There can be hostility within a family because of loyalty to Jesus. It could lead to being denounced, being informed on, uh, and receiving capital punishment. He says there in verse 22, you'll be hated by everyone. Because of me. Now again, that, that, that feels strange, doesn't it? Because we live in the Western world where, where Christianity has had a great influence and, and Christianity is respected. I have a pastor friend. Uh, he's actually in the area, in the upstate. He's not from the South, but when he moved South as a teenager, his atheist family, his dad told the family, okay, we, we have to find somewhere to go to church. And they're like, why? He's like, well, these people at work keep asking me, where do you go to church? Where do you go to church? It's bad for my business that I don't know how to talk this church talk. So he took his family to church and said, look, guys, I don't believe this garbage. You don't have to believe this garbage. But we just need to do enough of this to be able to fake it in this new situation. What he didn't plan on happening was his son getting saved and called into the ministry. And he's a faithful pastor in our denomination today. It's the exact opposite of what Jesus said. Jesus said, you'll be hated by everyone because of me. Well, well, this man's experience was not going to church is actually being my, uh, is actually impacting my business. So again, how do we think about these verses? I would say, just remember Romans 1. Our natural reaction is against Christianity. 
And there could be times and places where that controls more of the social culture uh, than what you experience now. If that's how people treated Jesus, it's possible that they could treat you that way as well. Again, the ideal is, when you think of family life, that they would all be saved and love the Lord and love one another. But when that doesn't happen, Jesus says, be prepared to be loyal to me. And let me hit this last verse, because I really just don't want to leave this hanging until next week. But he says, you know, there could be family problems. You'll be hated by everyone. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So again, finish the tour well. And of course, that echoes out to our faithfulness too. But notice what he says here in verse 23. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. So there's that wisdom again. There's trouble, leave. Go somewhere else. You don't have to stay where there's ongoing trouble or try to find it. You preach the message, go. Go somewhere else. But he says, truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now how should we understand this phrase that their preaching tour won't end before Jesus comes? How should we think of that phrase? I'll tell you how one uh, teacher of yesteryear thought of it. He said Jesus thought he was the Son of God. And he thought if the disciples go around and preach that I've come, everybody will believe in me and God's kingdom will come. And when that didn't happen, Jesus was so disappointed, he thought, i got to grab the wheel of time and turn it. And he did so by going to Jerusalem, but he got himself killed. The wheel of time turned on him and crushed him. And he died a disappointed man. Okay, that's pretty extreme, isn't it? How should we understand Jesus' words? Did he think his coming would occur in his lifetime? There'd be some glorious revelation. Well, let me give you what I think Jesus is saying here uh, before we end tonight. It's very tempting to read this. As a reference to Jesus' glorious appearing. What we even think about as the second coming. Because Jesus uses that language before the Son of Man comes. But it's best to understand the Old Testament influence on Jesus' language. The reference to the Son of Man comes from Daniel 7 verses 13 to 14. Where Daniel says, in my vision at night I looked. And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So there's the language from Daniel 7. If you've never read Daniel 7, that's the chapter that has all those beasts coming up and fighting one another and fighting against God's people. And the vision ends when this Son of Man is brought before God's throne in heaven and he is given kingship over all peoples. So in its original context, Daniel is simply saying, okay, my people are going to be persecuted. But one day, because they are faithful to death, they will have authority over the persecutors. The beast will hurt them, but one day, like Adam, they will tame the beast. 
And God's people are represented in the vision by that human figure, the one who is vindicated after his oppression. Now, here's how Jesus is utilizing that language. He's saying, I'm that son of man. And I know when we read Daniel, it's talking about the people of God. But I'm telling you, I'm going to fulfill it. How can I do that? Because I'm going to represent all of you. This ties right into what we were saying in in Romans 2 this morning. Jesus says, I'll represent you. I'll be the son of man. And I'll go through the experiences of suffering. And I'll suffer at the hands of the beasts. I'll suffer at the hands of the nations. And I'll do that on behalf of my people. And because I do that unto death, I will be vindicated. And I will come before the ancient of days. And I will receive this authority over all people. So I know it's tempting to say, oh, he says the Son of Man comes. That means comes again. No, in Daniel, Daniel saw the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. But he didn't come down to earth. He came into the heavenly throne room. And in the heavenly throne room, he received authority and vindication. So the last question we have to answer then is, okay, well, when does this become true of Jesus? What timetable does he have in mind? And I can't think of a better one than Matthew 28, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you hear those words that lead into the Great Commission echoing Daniel 7? He says, now that I've died, And now that I've been resurrected, I'm going to be taken up with the clouds into heaven and I am receiving this authority over the nations. So now you, my people, you take that authority and you go out into the world. Why? Because you won't stop going through these towns of Israel before I am vindicated, before you see my authority. So right here, right now, go and minister to Israel. But when you see me vindicated and when I commission you, then you go out and you go into all the world. So whatever persecution looks like, however hot and heavy it comes, whether it does or not, we live under the authority of the vindicated Christ. And we take his mission to the ends of the earth, and his resurrection power goes with us. So arm yourself with the one weapon that he has promised to bless, the truth of his word and the power of his gospel. And let's give thanks for that. Let's pray to that end. Father, you are kind and good, and you exalted your son to your right hand, and he has authority over the nations. He is Lord. He is King. So, Father, help us as your people, cheerfully, humbly, prepared for suffering, to take the gospel to the nations, not to take our own message, not to let that message get hijacked by any distortion of any group or any person. Lord, help us to see with clear eyes the truth of your word and the message of your kingdom. And Lord, please take it from here, from Roebuck, from Spartanburg County, from the upstate of South Carolina, take it to the ends of the earth. Save people, save people in our families, children, grandchildren, other relatives. 
save people in this church, save people in this community, and may that saving message go out from here and beyond and help us to find out whatever role we play in that story. Make us to know our gifts, our abilities, our opportunities, and even if we don't know all those, just to be ready to speak the message that you would give us by the power of your spirit. And equip this church to that end and bless those efforts with fruit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.